0: Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, very pleased that you all could be here with us today. Uh, as you can see, we're missing one speaker. Congressman, oh, he's, he's just arriving. Actually, perfect timing there. Uh, a little out of breath, so I will do a, a brief dance to give him time to catch his breath. Uh, actually, uh, uh, we're going to be here talking about the, uh, the the situation in Libya today. Uh, I should note that there are many different facets of the debate that we could be talking about, certainly the, the, military, uh, uh, the, the, the military endeavor there, the, uh, the, the wisdom of the foreign policy implications of, uh, of involving ourselves in, in what is essentially a civil war. What we're going to be talking about today, though, is, is really more focused on, uh, I guess, on Washington to some extent, and that is the balance of powers between the executive branch and the legislative branch the executive's authority to go to war unilaterally and uh, really analyzing some of the, some of those subjects so keep that in mind is uh, not only as you're listening to our presenters but also during the Q&A period uh, we didn't bring our, our team of foreign policy experts uh, but obviously that's that's a, a important dynamic of this conversation that, that uh, you can look at our, our website website cato.org and get plenty of information about our thoughts on that matter um, before I uh, introduce our first speaker, I actually wanted to, to thank uh, Congressman Garrett's office for helping make this event happen. Uh, in his role as the, the Constitution Caucus Chair, uh, he, I think he uh, really helped spread the word and, and come up with this uh, with the idea for this event. So thank you to, uh, to David Brewster and uh, uh, Congressman Garrett's excellent staff. Our first speaker is a member of of the Constitution Caucus as well as a member of the Republican Study Committee and uh, has been serving in Congress since November of 2000, or was elected to Congress in November 2008, has been serving since uh, uh, 2009. Uh, He represents the 4th District of California, uh, which is uh, just east of Sacramento. Uh, He spent, prior to joining Congress, 22 years in the California State Legislature. He was also a candidate for governor Uh, during the historic recall election. Uh, He's been candidate for statewide office uh, a couple of other times. Uh, I think he made a bid twice for the, the controller's office. Uh, amazingly, he started his political career in the California Assemb- Assembly at, uh, at the age of just 26. Uh, pretty phenomenal. And uh, he's been a real champion of uh, fiscal, fiscal restraint and limited government, both in the California Assembly, the California Senate, and now in the United States Congress. Um, with that, I will go ahead and turn things over to Congressman Tom McClintock. <laughs>
1: Well, I think it is appropriate that we're talking about the constitutional aspects of this because before you can get to the policy issues, before you can get to the fiscal issues, uh, you have to be able to do it in a nation that is supposed to be ruled by uh, laws and not by the whims of, of men and women. Um, when the president ordered the attack uh, on Libya without congressional authorization, uh, I believe that he crossed a very bright constitutional line that he himself recognized in 2007 uh, when he told the Boston Globe, these are his words, uh, the President does not have the power under the Constitution to unilaterally authorize a military attack in a situation that does not involve stopping an actual or imminent threat to the nation. Those were his words. He was right then and he is absolutely dead wrong today. The um, reason the American founders reserved the question of war to Congress was that they wanted to assure that so momentous a decision could not be made by a single individual. They had watched European kings plunge their nations into bloody and debilitating wars over centuries uh, on mere whim, and the founders wanted to avoid that fate for the American Republic. I mean, if you think about it, the most fatal and consequential decision a nation can make is to go to war. There's nothing more significant than that. And the American founders wanted to be sure that that decision was made by all of the representatives of the people after very careful and sober deliberation. Only when Congress has made that fateful decision does it then fall to the President as Commander-in-Chief to command our armed forces in that war. The uh, authors of the Constitution were absolutely explicit on this point. Uh, In uh, Federalist 69, for example, uh, Alexander Hamilton drew a sharp distinction between the American president's authority as commander-in-chief, which he said, quote, would amount to nothing more than the supreme command and direction of the military and naval forces, and the role of the British king as commander-in-chief, who could actually declare war and raise armies, which Hamilton said, uh, under the Constitution being considered, was solely the prerogative of the legislative branch. To contend that the um, president has the legal authority to commit an act of war without congressional approval requires ignoring every word that the Constitution's authors said on this subject, and they said quite a lot. Now, I've heard it said, even by members of Congress, well, Under the War Powers Act, the the president has the ability to order any attack he wants in any country he wants, and he has 60 days before he has to come to the Congress and get congressional approval. That is completely false. It was bad enough when I heard constituents mentioning that to me. When I heard members of Congress saying that, it really blew my mind. The War Powers Act is clear and unambiguous. The president may only order our armed forces into hostilities under three very specific conditions. And let me read it to you verbatim. It's not that complicated. Quote, one, a declaration of war. Two, specific statutory authorization. Or three, a national emergency created by attack upon the United States, its territories, or possessions, or its armed forces. End quote. Any questions? It doesn't get any clearer than that. Only if one of these conditions is present can the president invoke the War Powers Act and start that 60-day clock. And, of course, none of those conditions were met. None of them were alleged to have occurred uh, unless the president is in direct violation of that act. Uh, He mentioned uh, the authority of United Nations Resolution 1973 in the letter that he sent uh, to the congressional leadership. Uh, That somehow an act of the United Nations uh, is necessary for the President to go to war, but not an act of Congress. But he's wrong on that part as well. The uh, United Nations Participation Act, which was the act that entered the United States into the United Nations, um, requires explicitly requires specific congressional authorization before American forces are ordered into hostilities uh, in any United Nations action. The North Atlantic Treaty, uh, which he then has later cited as authority, also clearly requires troops under NATO command to be deployed in accordance with their country's constitutional provisions. And the War Powers Act specifically forbids the President from inferring from any treaty the power to order American forces into hostilities without specific congressional authorization." So you look at all of the acts which govern these decisions, you look at the Constitution, the only conclusion that we can make is that this was an illegal and unconstitutional act of the highest significance. The uh, President has implied that, that he, well, he just didn't have the time. Uh, to to, uh, approach the Congress over this question to avoid a humanitarian uh, disaster in Libya. What's interesting that he had plenty of time to get a resolution from the United Nations, he had plenty of time to consult 30 other countries about the subject, but he didn't have enough time to get to the Congress to actually fulfill the Constitution's mandate that this is a congressional decision, not a presidential decision. And I remind him that it was just a single day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor that Franklin Roosevelt appeared in the House chamber, addressed a joint session of Congress, requested a formal declaration of war, and got it. And in that address, which was about as clear-cut a a causus belli as any we have ever faced as a nation, he made it very clear. He said in these words, as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and the Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. He recognized that that was as far as the Constitution allowed him to go as commander-in-chief until and unless Congress declared war, which he appeared on December the 8th to request. Well... Some have said, in fact, I heard Ambassador Bolton say this the other day, well, Congress, it's the President who's Commander-in-Chief, if the President can order the military to do anything he wants, Congress is really there just, his, their control is, well, they can just cut off funds. Well, there's a little problem with that. You may have noticed if one country um, uh, commits an act of war against another country, Uh, That country is, from that moment, at war. When you drop bombs on a foreign country, it tends to make the folks in that country a little angry. Uh, And they now have what the Romans called, causus belli, uh, cause of war. And that is really entirely independent of anything that the Congress may then subsequently uh, order. Again, that's why that decision was vested in the Congress and not with the President, because once that decision is made, you are now inextricably uh, entangled with a belligerent and aggrieved power, that has every right to continue hostilities, regardless of what Congress then decides. I mean, suppose if the uh, Japanese Diet, uh, 60 days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, said, you know, that was really a bad idea, forget it. Does anybody here think that the United States would have backed off uh, in prosecuting that war? Of course not. Uh, Finally, I've heard it said, well, we did the same thing in, in, in Kosovo. Well, if that's the case, then shame on the Congress that tolerated it, and shame on our Congress if we sit here and do nothing in response to this very obvious and significant uh, unconstitutional act that strikes at the very heart of the Constitution. If, if, If this act is allowed to stand... Uh, I believe it will fundamentally change the entire character of the legislative and executive functions on the most momentous decision that a nation can make, and it will take us down very dark and bloody roads that the American founders fought so hard to avoid. So the next question occurs, well, okay, what do we do about it? And there are actually seven different options that are now uh, afloat uh, in the House that I'm aware of. Uh, The first one is sponsored by Dennis Kucinich and Ron Paul. That will be an amendment to the CR, which has to be taken up in the next few days, uh, to order all funds to be cut off uh, for the Libya adventure. Uh, The second uh, is is being talked about, nobody's actually moved forward on it, but that is to put up a congressional authorization uh, to attack Libya uh, for an up or down vote. Uh, The third uh, is a a measure being sponsored by uh, uh, Congressman Conyers, uh, which specifically forbids the use of ground troops in Libya. Uh, The fourth is is a concurrent resolution that's prescribed in the War Powers Act. Uh, I've considered that myself. My my concern is the War Powers Act has not been invoked. It can't be invoked because none of the conditions for it have been met. So it seems to be rather irrelevant. Uh, Justin Amash has a, uh, a, a bill Uh, that would um, uh, order uh, the troops out and the funding cut off. Uh, uh, Sixth, we could adopt a joint resolution in which Congress issues explicit warnings to this and future presidents that the War Powers Act means what it says. The Constitution means what it says, and if this or any future president ever stops across that line again, uh, explicitly state that uh, uh, Congress uh, reserves the option to impeach, and then finally we could also just introduce articles of impeachment, which would be the the ultimate enforcement of the Act. Um, I saw a legal treatise on the on the War Powers Act uh, uh, recently that, that made a great deal of sense. Uh, The point that they raised was simply this, that the War Powers Act, there are some constitutional questions about it as well, uh, in the sense that it does tend to delegate congressional powers to the executive. Um, Enforcement would be extremely difficult in any event, because as a practical matter, no court is likely to intervene uh, in a military action that is ongoing. Um, The point of this author was the War Powers Act is really there as a bright line telling any president who crosses it uh, that he does risk uh, impeachment. Um, That hint wasn't taken, so the next question is do we just move on it or do we uh, explicitly warn him and future presidents that that is, spell it out in, in, in clear words, that that Uh, uh, is the option available to the Congress. Those are the issues we're grappling with right now. Uh, I think you're going to start to see congressional action uh, as soon as the um, continuing resolution is taken up, if it's taken up. As you know, uh, we have to have it passed out by uh, Friday. Uh, actually, as a practical matter, it would be better to have it passed out uh, uh, by today. Uh, it's not clear that's going to happen, but as soon as it is taken up, I think you're going to start to see the first actions on this subject. So, with that, I thank you all for being here and look forward to any questions. I think that's yours.
0: Great, outstanding stuff. One other thing I, I should mention on the other side of the Capitol that, that's in the works on the uh, small business legislation—the uh, small business bill that's been floating around in the Senate for what seems like months now. Uh, there is a motion to recommit that's uh, being pushed by Senator Rand Paul that would insert to the language of again of the small business bill, which doesn't seem like the the perfect place for it, but I guess uh, it was the only the only ship leaving town at the time. Uh, it would insert language that says it is a sense of the Senate that quote the president does not. Have have power under the Constitution to unilaterally authorize a military attack in a situation that does not involve stopping an actual or imminent threat to the nation. So we'll keep uh, keep tabs on what's going on on the Senate side to see if that's included in that bill. Uh, with that, our next speaker is Gene Healy. He is a vice president at the Cato Institute, where he studies a variety of issues, including executive power and the role of the presidency. He's the author of a, a really superb book that came out in 2008 called The Cult of the Presidency. Uh, it was written, like I said, in 2008. And uh, I guess he wrote it primarily because of of the uh, uh, actions of, of President George W. Bush and many of his predecessors. But it certainly, uh, I think, holds true uh, with the current president, the, uh, the notion that, that the, the executive has taken a lot of actions to shift power away from the legislature and uh, toward the presidency. Um, He holds a bachelor's degree from Georgetown University and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. With that, Gene Healy.
2: Thanks, Brandon. Well, uh, a week ago Monday, nine days into the war, President Obama finally got around to explaining why we're bombing Libya. And in his nationally televised dress, which uh, ran to over 3,000 words, there are some words that don't appear. Uh, The words constitution and constitutional never appear. There's no justification made on that basis. Uh, The word Congress appears only once in a passing reference to consulting the bipartisan leadership of Congress. But one word that, that does show up a lot is I. It was very a speech that was very heavy on the first person singular. I made it clear that Gaddafi had lost the confidence of of his people. I said he needed to step down from power. I ordered warships. I refused to let that happen. I refused to wait. And of course, I authorized military action. But as the Congressman has just eloquently (coughs) explained, under our Constitution, War isn't a first-person affair. Uh, As James Wilson, one of the Constitution's architects, put it uh, in front of the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, the system will not hurry us into war. It's calculated to guard against it. It won't be in the power of a single man or a single body of men to involve us in such distress, because the important power of declaring war is vested in the legislature at large. And so I'd like to briefly treat how that important power was originally understood, how it applies to our ongoing Libyan adventure. And uh, then, before I turn it over to my colleague, John Samples, just uh, briefly respond to two of the uh, arguments that the administration has, uh, has made that contrary to all appearances, the operation in Libya is completely legal. Uh, those arguments are, I have to say, not very good. But let's start with the constitutional text. Uh, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 grants Congress the power to declare war. And the founding generation understood that power broadly. Uh, The Declaration of War Clause did not limit Congress to formally declaring war through what Hamilton called a, a a formal denunciation of war. Uh, didn't limit you to doing what we did in the War of 1812, for example. Uh, It also gave Congress the power to begin war either through formal proclamation or informally by authorizing the president to use military force, and this is something that the courts recognized very early on in a series of cases involving, uh, in in 1800, involving the quasi-war with France, that you could have a, quote, perfect war or an imperfect war, and uh, that was more limited and and that each had to be authorized by Congress. And that's entirely consistent with the constitutional structure that we have. When you look to other Provisions that uh, involve the initiation of force, the market and, and reprisal clause uh, involving authorizing citizens to take action against enemy shipping, um, the uh, the power to call out the militia. These force-initiating decisions are left with Congress, and the president is left with the power to, quote, repel sudden attacks, as Madison put it. Now, there's a, a counter-argument offered by... Uh, John Yoo, the former justice, uh, most principally by John Yoo, the former Bush Justice Department official uh, who wrote the legal memoranda arguing the president can evade congressional restrictions on wiretapping and torture. In the Wall Street Journal recently, you argued that the power to declare war was understood as a power to, quote, serve diplomatic notice about a change in legal relations between nations, and it had little to do with launching hostilities. So in this interpretation, the president has the uh, power to bomb or invade other countries at will, but the declare war clause gives Congress the power to make it official if they want. And you could call that a plausible reading, if you use plausible to mean doesn't do outright violence to ordinary language, but one of the things you'd want to check to see whether that was actually a correct reading is whether Anyone at the time thought that that was the constitutional allocation of powers that the framers had left us with, and uh, what you'll find is that everyone—and I do mean everyone—in the founding generation who said anything at all about the the, uh, the declare war clause spoke about it like a, it was a real limit on the president's power to use military force. George Washington doubted that he, as president, doubted that he had power to launch offensive operations against hostile Indian tribes without prior congressional approval. And, you know, in in many ways, it's ridiculous even to be addressing this issue because Alexander Hamilton, the uh, most rabidly pro executive of the framers, never suggested that the president had the power to launch a war without congressional authorization. He even gave a speech at the Philadelphia Convention where he proposed this uh, crazy plan to have a president who uh, who was basically elected for life, uh, sort of a quasi-monarch. But even there, even in this speech, he, he, he said that uh, that president would only have the uh, direction of war when authorized or begun. Uh, so the, the consensus, the evidence from original understanding is really quite clear on this, port, on this point that, uh, well, as we've heard the, the quote a couple times now from Barack Obama on the campaign trail in 2007, the president does not have power under the Constitution to unilaterally authorize a military attack unless you've got an actual or imminent threat to the, to the nation, the, the repelling sudden attacks, as Madison described it. Uh, so that's how uh, the founding generation understood congressional war powers. And it's how Barack Obama understood them up until the time that he actually got elected to the president. <laughs> presidency. Uh, so how does the administration square the answer that, uh, that, that Barack Obama gave to reporter Charlie Savage's question in 2007 with what they're now doing in Libya? Uh, Congressman McClintock McClintock, uh, uh, touched on the the, the two main arguments that that they make. Uh, That One, it's a a short, limited war or kinetic military action, as they they prefer to call it, uh, that the president has the power to do under the 60- to 90-day free pass provision, as they interpret it in the War Powers Resolution. And uh, the second argument, uh, that this is an internationally authorized intervention under U.N. Security Council Resolution 1973. Uh, these are, as i said, very bad arguments. Uh, the congressman covered uh, uh, the, with, with the quotation from the War Powers Resolution uh, a little of what's, uh, what's wrong with the, uh, the first argument, but this is still an argument that the administration appears to be Relying on when you, uh, you, like I said, you don't get a lot of legal justification out of uh, the President's address a week ago to the American people. But when administration officials are asked, uh, How do you square this statement, uh, the, the statement that Obama made in 2007, with what you're doing? Uh, they, they refer to it being time limited. Uh, the, the President's National Security Advisor stressed that it was limited in terms of duration. So it's constitutional because it's short. Uh, apparently, uh, never mind that that doesn't actually distinguish the operation in Libya from the question—the specific question that Obama was answering in 2007. That that question involved a hypothetical about uh, um, bombing Iran, bombing Iran's nuclear facilities, which one would assume would also be a limited. Uh, and short operation. Uh, but what they're getting at, again, is that the uh, the War Powers Resolution appears to contemplate a 60- to 90-day period in which the President can exercise some forth- force without authorization from Congress. Uh, that's what the Clinton Administration's Office of Legal Counsel argued in 1994 to, in part, to justify a, uh, tw- a planned 20,000 troop intervention in Haiti. But again, as the Congressman pointed out, the War War Powers Resolution itself only gives you three situations where the President is allowed to use military force to introduce troops into hostilities uh, without prior authorization. Uh, Declaration of War, specific statutory authorization, or national emergency created by an attack on the United States or United States forces, and none of those are met here. Uh, The War Powers Resolution further underscores that point by saying that nothing in the resolution is intended to alter the constitutional authority of Congress or the President, and nothing in it, quote, shall be construed as granting any authority to the President with respect to the introduction of United States Armed Forces into hostilities or situations where involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstances. It doesn't purport to add anything to the constitutional powers of the president, and uh, nor could it. The the Constitution trumps a statute. If the Constitution doesn't give the the president the power to commit the country to non-defensive wars, and it doesn't, then the War Powers Resolution cannot and does not change anything. Uh, Interestingly, the same reporter who asked uh, Obama the original question, recently pointed out in the New York Times that the 60-day clock for notification runs out in mid-May, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what the, if we're still bombing uh, Libya at that time, what justification, if any, the president offers for uh, violating, uh, plainly violating the War Powers Resolution. right. Uh, second, the uh, argument that uh, UN authorization makes congressional authorization optional. Uh, That's what Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, suggested on ABCs this week. Recently, Jake Tapper asked her, why not go to Congress? And she said, well, we'd welcome congressional support, but this is an internationally authorized intervention. And the day before that, her lieutenant, Harold, the State Department legal advisor, Harold Ko, made the same argument, cha- citing Chapter 7 of the UN Charter and Security Council Resolution 1973. Uh, in effect, the argument is, why go to Capitol Hill when you've already got your permission slip signed from Turtle Bay? Uh, a couple, couple of things here. Uh, First, it's doubtful that the U.S. extremely doubtful that the U.S. could could constitutionally negotiate a treaty that would erase Congress's constitutional powers over war and peace, as uh, congressional scholar Lewis Fisher points out. This would essentially mean that the Senate, and in, in, in agreeing to the UN Charter, that the Senate and the President could and did conspire to strip from the House of Representatives its constitutional role in matters of war. Uh, they can't do that. Uh, second, again, going to the War Powers Resolution, uh, it says that uh, that such authorization is not to be uh, con- is not to be uh, construed from any treaty ratified before or after 1973, in- unless uh, implementing legislation specifically authorizes the introduction of troops, and uh, that no treaty has anything to, con- to say to constitute an authorization within the meaning of the War Powers Resolution. Uh, third, nothing in the UN Charter overrides member states constitutional processes when it comes to war making. Uh, if that was what the UN Charter authorized, it never would have been ratified by the United States Senate. It was doubts on this sort of question that killed uh, Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations earlier after World War I. Uh, Fourth, and finally, even if the UN Charter empowered the UN Security Council to commandeer U.S. troops, uh, you know, thus arguably giving rise to an obligation for the President to provide those troops uh, under his obligation to take care that the, the laws are faithfully executed, even if international law could command such a thing, it doesn't do so here. Uh, by the terms of the resolution, uh, Security Council resolution authorizing the the no-fly zone, it doesn't uh, it doesn't command Member States to carry out an air war over Libya. On its face, the, the resolution authorizes, it doesn't obligate. And if the President wants to thinks it's important for the United States to be involved in implementing that resolution, He needs authorization from the United States Congress. Uh, Just briefly in conclusion, one of the few quasi-legal arguments that that President Obama actually made in his address uh, last Monday to the American people was that if he hadn't acted, quote, the writ of the UN Security Council would have been shown to be little more than empty words, crippling its future credibility to uphold global peace and security now the problem is that in the course of acting to uphold the writ of the u.n security council the president treated the united states constitution with its careful allocation of powers over war and peace he treated that document as empty words and i think we ought to find that disturbing i mean it's good for the president that he got sign-offs from the rotating, rotating members of the U.N. Security Council like Colombia, Gabon, and uh, Lebanon, and permanent members like France and Britain. He's also got the uh, support of the editorial bo- boards of the New Republic and the Washington Post. What he doesn't have is what the Constitution requires, which is a vote from the American people's representatives. And the Politico recently ran a piece covering the outrage about that that's brewing on some quarters here on the Hill, and they quoted an irate but unnamed Democratic congressman who said, they consulted the Arab League, they consulted the United United Nations, they did not consult the United States Congress. And that's about the size of it, and what remains to be seen is what, if anything, Congress is going to do about it. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Gene. Uh, batting cleanup today is John Samples. He's the director of Cato's Center for Representative Government, where he studies a number of issues, including campaign finance, term limits, and today's subject, the delegation of legislative authority to the executive. Uh, In addition to his role at Cato, he's also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Uh, He's the author of uh, The Struggle to Limit Limit Government, A Modern Political History, which came out, I believe, last year. Uh, It's an excellent read. and he holds his Ph.D. in political science from Rutgers University. John Samples.
3: (laughs) Thanks Brandon. I I just want to start uh, moving quickly along because I know there's going to be questions for everyone. Uh, With a a brief uh, point about uh, uh, Representative McClintock's speech, which was I thought it was very, it's really great in studying these things, to hear a congressman talk about the Constitution, and also to hear a congressman talk about Congress itself as having a role and taking some pride in the institution and so on. So a uh, congressman is very Madisonian of you today, and I, I, can, I can give a, <laughs> no higher praise to anyone. And that's what James Madison wanted, and that's why the Constitution's the way it is. And I think one thing that hasn't been said today is what, would, what were they trying to do in Philadelphia in 1787? They didn't like war they feared war. One person at the uh, convention said, it should, we should make it hard to get into wars and easy to get out of them, right? They, they were not uh, at all bloodthirsty or desiring, although they recognized the need for national defense and so on. Um, and so that's what they w- were trying to do. And what they wanted is not... Uh, you know, an absolute bar on the ability to use uh, the, uh, national defense or the military to defend the country. They wanted some collaboration. They wanted some public discussion. They wanted public debate. They wanted, to put it in one word that they would have used, they wanted to live in a republic and to have republican values. They wanted to force some discussion about this, to make the president come to Congress and have, get some authorization so you just don't have one person exercising their alleged prerogatives because they had already lived through that, as the congressman said, that was the English king. And that's what we're about today, and that's how serious this is. I want to focus on one issue and one issue only and a little bit of history and suggest why it's important very quickly. I was struck, uh, as I know perhaps many of you were, when you read President Obama's letter that he sent on the Monday after the Saturday beginning of the battle in Libya, Uh, his letter essentially announcing what had happened. It begins by saying, I ordered uh, military operations, and then he gives the time and where and so on. But immediately thereafter, when you're expecting sort of, why are you doing this? What is the point? Two things are mentioned. One is the United Nations authorization and some other multinational authorizations, and also the humanitarian uh, rationale for it. Well, that's pretty striking to me, I thought, that the president, in his own mind, it seemed, that the rationale and the authorization for this undertaking came from the United Nations because, and it also, at the same time in the speech, he had taken on a universal jurisdiction, as it were, of protecting foreign nationals, and uh, as he said in his speech later, throughout the world. And what went with it was a kind of authorization that came from a world body. Well, I thought, you know, this is very odd that the president would do something like this, uh, refer to somebody outside the Constitution, outside the United States. So I started looking about this and it turns out that it is a bit odd and I want to just talk briefly about that and then suggest what needs to be done. The most likely and most clear-cut example in the past of this happening is in fact in the post-World War II period and the first war of that period, the war in Korea. You may recall that the war in Korea began with an invasion of the South. It required quick action and got quick action from President Truman. He never sought, however... They did have a United Nations uh, authorization for defending South Korea, largely because the Soviets were boycotting the Security Council at the time. (laughs) President Truman never sought uh, authorization from Congress. So in fact, he ended up fighting the Korean War uh, solely on the basis of two things. One was the United Nations resolution, and second was the fact that he refused to call it a war. thousands of American lives uh, ultimately uh, lost there and and untold treasure and so on but it was called a police action under the United Nations and therefore he undertook it in in his role purely as commander-in-chief that is the commander-in-chief powers were enough for it The war itself was became, we don't remember now so much, became very unpopular and the president paid a tremendous political (laughs) price for it. But notice, when people talk about it this way, this is completely wrong. The Constitution does not say that there's some kind of after the fact uh, punishment or reward for having wars. The Constitution has a process that is ex ante. It's before things happen, Congress is supposed to be consulted. We don't have wars and then find out on election day if it was a good idea. or not, because you're going to hear arguments about that. Well, the president doesn't have total discretion because ultimately he has to face the voters. But that's not the constitutional process that we have. The the other examples that are close to this, uh, this kind of uh, use of the United Nations for armed attacks and use of force, would be the Kosovo. Uh, Example Now, in 1991, in uh, the Persian Gulf War, the Bush administration did claim, under a United Nations resolution, that they had the power to do it alone. But they did not do it and did not try to undertake the war on that basis. They actually went and got congressional authorization. In uh, Kosovo, in 98 and 99, President Clinton ultimately said that he had the power to conduct the bombing campaign in Kosovo, that it was a, a presidential power, and, but, and this is a little bit different, and, and quite different from uh, the current situation. He claimed that the ability came and, and he was transferring the authority to NATO. So ultimately, it wasn't just the United Nations. It was a multinational treaty organization, which goes with all the problems of constitutionality, which is you can't have a treaty arrangement, the Senate and the President, amending the Constitution. It doesn't work like that, or it's kind of pointless to have a written Constitution. Now, um, so what else can we be said about this? Well, the question is, so we are in a, a very interesting and not quite unique but important situation, which is this. This is only the second time I sense that we have a president claiming solely on the basis of a UN resolution that he can use force abroad. Now, the the issue is this, though, in two ways. If it's the second time, there will not be only the second time. There will be a third and fourth time. The concern I have here is that with the Constitution the way it is, often the defenders of presidential prerogatives, and we've heard this argument from Jack Goldsmith and others this time, that you know, the Constitution's kind of ambiguous, but the presidents have been doing this, and since they've been doing it and Congress doesn't say anything about it, well, let's just assume the Constitution's been amended because it's been amended in practice, really, because Congress didn't show any desire to push back, right? Uh, so if this just goes down the pike and nobody says anything, there are no votes in Congress, there, are, there is no uh, attempt to defund or anything, there is going. To, there are going to be more wars like this, and there, we are going to essentially see a transfer of the authorization uh, in practice, if not in theory, of war making from the United States to some multinational body or the United Nations Security Council. So what needs to be done? In the past, Congress has at least, one uh, chamber or the other has tried to defund, or has um, has in fact done so, or put limitations on funding. Uh, What we need is some pushback from Congress in some way that is a serious political uh, gesture, excuse me, gesture, Or, of course, ideally, Congress would use its powers to uh, that Madison, to finish with where I began, that Madison thought, uh, and sadly had great confidence in, it didn't turn out to be true, that the power to control appropriations would be the power ultimately that Congress would exercise over the executives. Thank you.
0: All right, we have time for some questions now. If you have a question, please do me a favor and uh, try to keep it relatively short so we can get to as many folks as possible. And please do speak up because we don't have a microphone for you. Uh, yes, we'll start right there. I have a question about the sanctions because I, I understand that while well, we come to Congress over the sanctions
3: proposition and subsequently, as uh, we just learned this morning, that sanctions are lifted. this just by executive fiat, from um, the position on one of the defectors that that is recently, um, you, know, well, to, you, know, and and you know, the high-level this morning is, you know, Briscoe all about the under his, you know, suspicion of robbery convictions. So, what what is the algorithm? When you went for the sanctions, was there any implicit authorization in? Anything that was passed or discuss
0: there that could suggest that the number of things happened to move and does he have before with sanctions? Is anybody aware
1: of that? I don't know the answer to most of those questions, but th- there is one that I do know, and that is imposing sanctions is not an authorization to engage U.S. armed forces in hostilities.
0: Let me ask him. Okay, sorry, we don't have a... Full answer for you there. I don't know if we're quite as familiar with the, the, the sanctions issue. Uh, yes, we'll go right there. Yes, when um, when uh, Secretary
1: Gates came and uh, was before the Senate, he said, "Well, the Senate was consulted because they they passed a unanimous resolution of uh, 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 calling for the no-fly zone." So, how do you respond to that? Well, uh, a declaration of war is an act of the Congress. It's not a unilateral act of one uh, body of the Congress. I mean, th- that's pretty clear-cut. Uh, and, 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 and the Constitution does not require Congress to be consulted. It requires Congress to consent.
2: Uh, yes, uh, I mean, you, you've got uh, the Senate, not the House, and the Senate. And uh, there's a piece in the Washington Examiner, I think, yesterday about how that, was, uh, that, that particular uh, passage was slipped in, slipped past everyone in the Senate. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Rand Paul... Uh, did not mean to vote for that or was unaware of that as he's now going around trying to insert uh, President Obama's 2007 about statement about the the limits of uh, the president's war powers in in uh, the small business bill, so uh, the, If you check out that it's by a, a fellow named con Carroll He has all the details uh, in the Washington examiner of uh, uh, that was a little bit of a bait and switch, and, and many of the people who voted for it had no idea it was even in the legislation. Uh, right here? It seems that undergirding a lot of what you've said is a historical question about Congress not really liking war, and the president generally being more comfortable with going to war or some sort of military action. Why is there that difference that the, that the executive branch is so much more willing to exercise that kind of power and, and Congress is so much more reluctant?
3: Gene uh, and I have had this discussion uh, from time to time, and, and one of the things uh, there's a political science literature that says, you know, the presidency is. is we're still fairly constrained on domestic policy side, but really where presidents can make differences and where they can do things is in foreign policy. And for in the post-World War II era, they've really had a loss, an increase in discretion. But the incentives, I think, are for presidents to look outward because they can actually do things without having to collaborate, or at least they believe they can. Uh, Congress has some of the problems of uh, just collective action, getting themselves together. Though, and sometimes who, who is supposed to be consulted with isn't exactly clear. But I, I think also there's been a, when I mentioned about uh, Congressman McClintock's speech, what I always look for is, you know, Madison thought that Congress would be a rough, tough organization that had lots of uh, pride in its institution and people would feel like they were members of Congress and they were here to defend the prerogatives of Congress. I and mean, I just don't see a lot of that and I wonder why. And I, I don't know why. And I'm glad, I hope we're seeing it again now.
0: Uh, yes.
3: Hi. Sharon Bradford Franklin with the Constitution Project. And my question is mainly for the Congressman. Um, we put out a report uh, in 2005 that Cato was uh, kind enough to uh, circulate here today on war powers, which is by a bipartisan committee, which is basically on all fours but all, but all the speakers have been saying about the importance of Congress acting here. But my, my question for the Congressman is you laid out a series of potential options that are already floating around. Mm-hmm. Um, what option do you favor, and what odds do you place on Congress actually stepping up and speaking on this question, whether there should be force or try to it or taking some actual uh, vote?
1: Well, Obviously, the most immediate actions are are the best of uh, the the concurrent resolution. I I have a great deal of of hope will be taken up. An amendment will be uh, offered, uh, and there will be a vote of the Congress on that. Um, You know, that's something we can do this concrete, immediate, and will at least give us a sense of where the the House of Representatives actually stands on the issue. Um, uh, uh, My sentiment right now uh, is in favor of the joint resolution just explicitly saying that uh, if this or any future president ever crosses that line uh, uh, they will be subject to impeachment. Uh, I don't think there's a sense uh, within the Congress to to actually impeach the president over this, um, there is you know partisan support for him on the Democratic side. There is some policy support for him on the Republican side that I don't share. I might add, um, but I do think that um, a, an an explicit drawing a line in the sand uh, would be a very good thing. And of course, a joint resolution uh, doesn't require the consent of the president. There's simply a note to the President from the Congress, don't you dare do this again.
0: Uh, yes, sir. Uh,
1: Samar Chattery from the State Foundation. Uh, Congressman, I congratulate you for taking those lines, and I hope you get that there should be a warning to all presidents, past and present,
2: mm-hmm. and I would suggest add another thing, that their security that they are entitled to lifelong, should be stripped so that The people they murdered as a result of an illegal war can get back to them because once their security is stripped, they will be subject to assassination. And because they have committed such an illegal act, they should be subject
1: to that. Well, I prefer to draw the line at impeachment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's another hand up or... Yes, please.
3: Well, it's, uh, a to, to go more deeply into what uh, what has the most momentum right now. And I wasn't clear on, you said, that the concurrent
1: resolution has the most momentum. Well, there, there, no, there, a, a, no I, I think right now the most immediate action that will be taken is an amendment to the concurrent. There's a continuing resolution to fund the government. That's that's the most immediate opportunity that we have. Okay. Amend that, because that has to be, yes, that has to be uh, uh, taken up uh, within the next uh, uh, few days. Um, and that's, um, that, that's something that has to be taken up. It has to pass. Um, uh, it's, it's going to be there. That's where we can, we can exercise the power of the purse. Uh, I, again, the problem with the power of the purse is once you've unleashed the dogs of war, it is sometimes very, very hard to recall them. You can't simply turn wars on and off with congressional appropriations. So that's why I would then favor the joint resolution that draws that line in the sand.
3: And you're saying that the Paul amendment is going
0: to come up. I mean, it will be allowed.
1: Uh, well, we'll see. It's going to be attempted. I am assured of that.
2: That was my question. I was under the assumption it probably would come up under a closed rule.
1: Well, then th- th- then it will be proposed to the uh, Rules Committee, and then the rule has to be voted on.
0: Uh, yes.
2: Well, I was glad to see, Congressman, that
3: you did sign on to this with Paul, Rand Paul, and Kucinich, and that there is a already
1: bipartisan Uh, nature of this, and if you were just to throw out some numbers in terms of Congress people on both the progressive Democrat side and the more Libertarian Republicans, what numbers would you come up with of people who really are upset about uh, this action? I truly don't know the answer to that question. I don't even have a sense of it. Uh, My my, my fear is it may not be a majority, but it it, it, it still needs to be done. there is a, again, you're going to find a lot of, uh, of partisan. Uh, circling of the wagons among Democrats, you're going to find a certain degree of interventionism among a particular wing uh, of, of the Republicans. Uh, uh, together, my fear is that may form a majority, but that's not an argument for not trying. It has to be tried. Um, uh, even the introduction of these measures will at least provide a certain degree of warning to the President that maybe he ought to think twice before doing it again.
0: All right, well it looks like we're about out of time. Thanks so much again for joining us. Thanks again to Thanks Thanks again to Congressman Garrett and the Constitution Caucus for making this happen and, and thanks of course to our panel.